Well, um, well, I was uh, I was born Republican, and um, and uh, from the time I was just this high, little little Zach would have been described by most people as hyper conservative. I used to wake up when I was ten years old at five in the morning so that I could watch Rush Limbaugh on TV. Um, when I was in sixth grade, I was the only kid in a play. I was in this professional play. I was the only kid. I was surrounded by adults for several hours a day, and these adults uh, referred to me as their little born again Republican which I'm sure coming from a bunch of actors was a term of endearment. Um, but uh, I, I'm, I'm now kind of pretty middle of the road when it comes to politics. I don't lean too far on one side or the other. And I really think a thoughtful and prayerful examination of the scripture really does keep you from going too far to either side. If we really do believe that our ultimate authority is God's word and we put ourselves under the authority of God's word, there's some issues where we're going we're gonna to fall on a very conservative uh, side. There are other issues where we might fall on a more liberal side. And there are plenty of issues where you could really fall on either side and still be biblically sound. A lot of the things we're going to be talking about during this justice series will seem political, but I want you to hear right up front. OJ said, I'm the one kind of spearheading this series. I want you to know that's not our intention. We're just in such a divisive political climate right now where you can hardly say anything without it seeming politically motivated. But that's not the case. Our goal is not to try to apply our politics to the Bible, but to apply the Bible to our politics. And what we've been praying and what I've been praying specifically for what I'm going to say today is that we all as a church family would come together holding everything we bring in politically or, or socially loosely and allowing God's word and what he says about justice and what he says is the call of the church to affect us. Throughout this series, we're using as kind of the framework for the series, Jesus's very first sermon, the first sermon he ever preached. It's found in Luke 4, and if you have a Bible and you wanna turn there, I'm gonna read it to you right now. It's not printed in your bulletin because it's not the main text for today. And I already know, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh my goodness, Zach has two texts. He's gonna try to get in two sermons. Um, it'll be a sermon and a half, I promise. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep it really, uh, actually this beginning part uh, is just by way of introduction. So we're just gonna spend a little bit of time here, but I think it's important that we hear this first sermon of Jesus. We're in Luke 4. I'm going to start reading in the 16th verse. He, being Jesus, went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unfolding it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is God's word. This was Jesus's first sermon. And he deliberately sought out this passage in Isaiah 61 as the starting point to launch his public ministry. 
This is a big deal. Whatever you choose to preach on as your first sermon is a big deal. My first sermon here at Summit, I, I chose to preach on Genesis 3, which is the fall of mankind. And I don't want us to think too much about what that says about me, but I do want us to think about what Jesus choosing this passage in Isaiah 61 says about him what it says about why he came, the mission he came to fulfill, and what he's inviting us into. Did you hear how he ended uh, the passage? After he finished reading the passage, he sat down and he said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's not talking about something that's gonna happen one day. He's not talking about eternity, although these things will be true of the new heaven and the new earth. He's talking about something that is happening in the here and now. Just like he taught us to pray when he said, pray and say, Lord, make it on earth as it is in heaven. These are things that are not just something we're to long for. There's something that can be experienced in the here and now. So Jesus began his public ministry by declaring that there is good news for the poor. There's freedom for the prisoner. There's recovery of sight for the blind and that the oppressed will be set free. Like I said, today I'm kind of focusing on what it means to set the oppressed free. And to engage in that conversation, we have to know who are the oppressed? What, what, is, what does it mean when the Bible talks about oppression? Well, almost every time the word justice appears in the Old Testament, an oppressed group of people is mentioned. Right now I'm listening to the audio book, uh, Just Mercy, by Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson is, is a lawyer and, um, and uh, the book really focuses on um, our criminal justice system, in particular on death penalty ca cases in the South, uh, and, and mostly in Alabama where I'm from. And it, it's one of those books, it's very compelling. He's an incredible writer, but it's one of those books that's not a great audio book, especially if you listen while you're driving. I found myself getting very emotional while I'm driving. I found myself getting very angry when I'm driving. The other day, I was at a stoplight and one of our other pastors, Andy Simons, pulled up behind me and he honked at me to, to kind of say, hey. And he said, Zach, you turned around and looked at me like you were gonna kill me. And then it was because I was listening to this book and this book had got me so worked up. Uh, I was listening to this book on my way to pick up some payway takeout the other night. And I guess I was still like brooding about it because after I paid and I turned to walk away, there was a man waiting also to pay, um, kind of standing over to the side. And as I turned to walk away, he goes, yeah, that's right. Walk away, tough guy. And I was like, Thank you. No one's ever called me tough before. Um, but, but I guess like the book, I, I still kind of had that face. I, you know, I like to think of myself as a pretty pleasant, smiley person. But, but this book had really gotten into me, uh, into my, you know, my, my facial expressions, my attitude. Um, and, uh, and there's a line in the book that really struck me. He writes, the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. And I thought, that's, that's a striking and profound statement. Now, the first time I heard it, I, I didn't know what it meant, and I wasn't even sure if it was true. Uh, but I thought, well, that's striking. But as I've studied the word justice in the Bible, I found that this is a very biblical understanding of justice. The opposite of poverty is not wealth, it's justice. The Hebrew word for justice, mishpat, means not only acquitting someone or punishing someone on the, on the merits of the case, regardless of their race or their social class, but it also means to give people their rights. In, he, in, uh, in Proverbs 31.9, it says, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. In other words, give people what they're due, whether that's punishment or protection or care. 
And over and over and over again, mishpat is used to describe the care and the cause of the oppressed. And throughout the Old Testament, there are certain groups of people that are constantly mentioned by name when it talks about oppression. It mentions the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, and the poor. Zechariah 7, 10 through 11 says this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the immigrant or the poor. Now in this time in history, society was pretty much an agrarian culture. And most of the people mentioned when talking about oppression were people who who probably didn't own land, who were constantly under the threat of becoming poor and destitute. In his book, Generous Justice, uh, which I'm also reading now um, and it's wrecking me, uh, Tim Keller suggests that in today's world, it's appropriate to expand this group of people who are at constant risk of becoming oppressed to include the migrant worker, the refugee, the homeless, and in some cases, the single parent and the elderly. He goes on to say that the mishpat, or the justice of a society, according to the Bible, will be evaluated by how that society treats these groups of people. And any neglect of the needs of these people is not just a lack of mercy and charity, but a clear violation of justice. The opposite of poverty is justice. God over and over and over again identifies him as a God of the oppressed. Psalm 146, seven says, he executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 18 says, the Lord your God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the immigrant, giving him food and clothing. The main way God wants to be known is a God of the oppressed. Maybe you're here today um, and you don't really go to church. Maybe you're just checking things out. Maybe you haven't gone to church in a long time or maybe you've never gone to church. And if that's you, I have a question for you. When you think of God, when you think of the Christian God, when you think of the God that your Christian friends worship, is the first thing that comes to your mind, that's the God of the oppressed. Is it? If it's not, it's because the people of God have not proven to be people of the oppressed. This isn't a political thing, it's a people of God thing. The hope of the world is not based in some kind of government, but in the church. When Jesus came to earth, the religious leaders were hoping and longing that God would just send a new government that would make everything right. But he didn't do that. He sent the church. He sent a a group of of people, diverse people, people from all different walks of life who, who were devoted to him, living in community on mission for his glory. That's the hope of the world. So whether or not we have a government that's on the side of the oppressed, we as people of God, as the church, as the body of Christ, have to be people of the oppressed because that's who our God is. So how do we become that? How do you and I, how do we move towards being the kinds of people that God has called us to be? How do we set the oppressed free? 
Well, that brings us to the text we're going to look at the rest of our time. It's in Deuteronomy 15, and we're going to read several verses. And, and I know there's a tendency when you read lots of scripture for people to zone out, and especially when it's an Old Testament text. But uh, it's written in your bulletin. I encourage you to read along. What, do whatever you need to do to stay engaged, because I really think there's, there's some amazing truth from this Old Testament text that we can apply today to learn and see what it means to be the people of God. So let's look at this together. We're in Deuteronomy 15, and I'm gonna start reading at the first verse. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people, because the Lord's time of canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. However, there need be no poor people among you. For in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised. And you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hands to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year, you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. This is why I give you this command today. This is God's word. So if we're gonna understand these instructions that God's giving his people, we have to first understand the economic context to which they find themselves. Again, this is a pre-industrial agrarian society. This is a society where people didn't deliberately go out and ask for a business loan so they could get ahead. I don't even think there was such a thing. There was no business loan. There was no mortgage loan. Um, Everyone, especially in the beginning of Israel's history, was a farmer. So why would a farmer need a loan? Well, a farmer would need a loan if he had a bad crop and he didn't have the funds to buy seed for the next year's crop. And so there are a number of reasons why this could be. There could have been famine. There could have been bad weather. They could have had some kind of military conflict, maybe a death in the family. But for whatever reason, if you had a bad crop and your family uh, didn't have the means to buy seed for the next year's crop, you were not only in risk of losing your land, but you were in risk of losing everything, starvation, maybe even your life. Therefore, if a person needed a loan, it wasn't to get ahead. It was because a person was falling into poverty. 
That's what God is addressing here. He's addressing to his people, this is how I want you to treat those who are in the, uh, the circumstances of falling into poverty. It's also the reason why verse three is not as prejudiced as it sounds. I don't know if you picked up on that, but in verse three, he says, all right, if you have a fellow Israelite who, who took a loan from you, you need to forgive them, but you don't need to forgive the foreigner. What's actually happening there is a foreigner at this time didn't own land in Israel. Um, so if a foreigner was there, he was there as a trader of goods. Um, he, uh, he didn't own land. And so whatever kind of loan or agreement was between the two of them wasn't tied to land. So therefore it wasn't, uh, he wasn't at risk to falling into poverty. What God is talking about here, the instructions he's giving his people here is in regards to people who are at risk of falling into poverty. So that's the background. If you needed a loan, it wasn't to get ahead. It was because you were falling into poverty. And in that context, God says, this is how you, my people, are to do justice. He first calls them to a radical generosity. Go back to verse one of chapter 15. Every seven years, all debts were forgiven. Not only that, in verses 12 through 15, it talks about all slaves are set free. Now, again, this isn't the kind of slavery that you and I think of when we think of slavery. This is an indentured servitude. So let's say you were a farmer and you had a bad crop one year and you took out a loan for seeds for the next year. And then the next year you had a bad crop again. So you had to take out another loan. And eventually your debt got so huge that the only way of, of making amends was to say, okay, I'm, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna, I'm gonna work for you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be your slave. And so there's a level of, of falling into poverty by needing a loan, but then there's another level of poverty when it comes to slavery. And in verses seven through nine of Deuteronomy 15, God says, whenever anyone falls into poverty, you must give them everything they need. And he knows how our minds work. Did you hear what he said? He said, all right, I know some of you might be thinking, all right, what if it's only a year or two away from the year of release? And someone comes to me and they're in desperate need and they need a loan. Well, if I loan to them, I'm probably gonna get back about 20% of, of what I'm giving them. So I'm just not gonna do it. But God makes it very clear. He says, if you are my people, you will give it. And not only will you give it, knowing that you're not gonna get back everything that you've given, but you're gonna give it without a grudging heart. Verse 10, give generously. See, God right there, he's saying, my, my people, the people of God are gonna cultivate a heart of generosity. That's the first step. So what, what do you, what do, what do we need to do in order to cultivate a generous heart? It doesn't necessarily mean we have to have extra. It doesn't mean we have to have lots of money to be generous. No, we can all be generous but maybe for some, you don't even know where to begin with that. The reason we offer uh, financial peace by Dave Ramsey over and over again here at Summit is because we think you gotta understand your finances. You gotta understand where your money's going because once you get a handle on that, then maybe you can begin to see ways in which you can be generous that you didn't know before. But the people of God, that's their first call. He sets up a system where he says, I'm calling you to be radically generous. I'm calling you to be generous in a way that doesn't make sense economically. And then second, he calls his people to empower the poor to self-sufficiency. Now, there's a difference between relief and empowerment. Relief is when you're providing a Band-Aid. You're keeping someone from starving. It's a homeless shelter or a soup kitchen. It's relief. It's something very acute, and you're meeting that need. It's, it's kind of what the Good Samaritan did to the man by the wayside. But empowerment is much more, time, much more costly, much more expensive, much more difficult. 
It's saying, all right, I'm gonna come, I'm gonna walk alongside a person to bring them to a level of self-sufficiency. Let me reread uh, verses 12 through 15 again in Deuteronomy 15. It says this, if any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year, you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as your Lord God has blessed you. That's capital. They didn't have banks back then. They didn't have cash. So imagine if, if, you're a pers- if a person fell into a debt so deeply that they had to become an indentured servant to you, that meant that when you release them, not only do you forgive them of all their past debts, but you give them what they need to get on their feet. If you release a person and wipe out all their debts and set them free, that person without the things they need are already at risk to fall into oppression again. They're already at risk to falling into poverty again. And so God says, what do you have to do? They're not gonna be able to get on their feet on their own. You've gotta supply them liberally. He says, supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. So God is calling his people not just to relief work, but to become economic developers who empower the poor and the oppressed to self-sufficiency. That's timely, I mean, that that takes so much time. That's so expensive. Economic development means job training and better schools and helping a person overcome self-destructive habits. It's all the things that go into bringing a person, an oppressed person, to a place of economic and social and personal and moral and spiritual self-sufficiency. It's a far greater investment. It's what's happening at Samaritan Village. I I really do hope you'll come back tonight because I think what's happening at Samaritan Village is amazing. These women who have been trafficked, I mean, there there are people who are walking alongside them to help them get whatever they need so that they don't fall back into it. It's not just relief. It's how can we empower you to get ahead? God says, my people should be committed to radical generosity and to engaging in economic development and empowerment of the poor. Um, in this, the book, Just Mercy, there's, an int- there's a story of a man, uh, Herbert Richardson, and he's a Vietnam War vet, um, and, uh, and he was on death row for a crime that he did commit, but, uh, but a crime that didn't deserve capital punishment. Uh, and Brian Stevenson was his lawyer, and, and he was the only person allowed to be um, with Herbert 30 minutes prior to his death. And so Brian talks about being in that little holding room with him and, and the conversation they had before his execution. And Herbert said to Brian, he said, this has been such a strange day. He said, all day long, people have been asking me, what can I do to help you? So I woke up this morning and, and, and they're, what can I do to help you? Do you? What do you want for breakfast? What can I do to help you? Do you want coffee? What can I do to help you? Can I, can I get you some stamps for your letters? What can I do can, to help you? Do you, do, you want, do you want a book or do you want a Bible or, or do, you, do you want to listen to a certain music? What do you want for lunch? He said, all day long, people keep asking me the same questions. What can I do to help you? And then he said to Brian, he said, I've been asked that question more in the last 14 hours than I have the rest of my life. Who do you need to ask? Who's in, in, in danger of falling into poverty and oppression that needs you to just ask, what can I do to help you? God says, my people are not only gonna be radically generous, 
but they're people who ask that question. What can I do to help you? And then lastly, God causes people to hope. Poverty is not just a lack of things, it's a lack of hope. God causes people to have a remarkable yet realistic hope for the poor, vision for the poor. In verse four, he says, there will be no poor people among you if you do everything that I'm instructing you to do. They won't exist. But then in verse 11, did you hear this? He says, there will always be poor among you. So do everything I'm telling you to do today. Well, I think this is uh, the author's way and God's way of showing us that we are to have a remarkable but a realistic hope. See, the Bible is remarkably balanced when it talks about the reasons people become poor. The Bible talks about oppression being a cause, calamity. It talks about our own personal choices. There are all different ways that we become poor. And because this is a fallen and a broken world, we are constantly going to have people becoming poor. But what God says here is, if you do everything I say, there will not be a permanent class of poor people among you. There won't be a cycle of poverty for the same people again and again and again. See, this isn't some utopian idea that somehow we can eradicate poverty if we just do the right social engineering. But on the other hand, it's not the cynicism that many of us carry around. Like, there's, it's so overwhelming. There's so many poor. There's, there's nothing we can do. They'll always be here. It's so crushing. No, there's none of the cynicism, but there's none of the utopianism. There's just a remarkable, realistic hope. One commentator of this passage puts it like this. Here we see the combination of upholding the highest ideal on the one hand and legislating for the realities of sinful people on the other, for the fruitful ethical tension between what ought to be and what actually is. So do you have a picture for the poor? Do you have that picture? Do you have a vision for them? Do you have a hope that is both remarkable and realistic? Now, I know some of you might be thinking, all right, Zach, you can't pick up what God says to his people in the Old Testament and place it down on America. You can't take this theocratic nation where, where every single person is in a covenant relationship with God and place that down on our government. And you're right. But you can pick up what God tells the Old Testament people of God and put it down on New Testament people of God, on Christians. You can take what God called the people of God in the Old Testament to do and be about and place it down on top of what he's called us to be about. In Acts 4, 34 and 35, it says this, there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Do you hear that? Luke, the the writer of Acts, is taking directly what God said in the Old Testament. If you follow everything I'm telling you today, there will be no needy person among you in Israel. And Luke is placing it down on these first Christians. And he's saying, these Christians actually did it. What God asked of his people thousands of years ago, all of a sudden this group of Christians, these, these kind of nobodies, these, these not smart intellectual, these, I mean, all the actual Christians are doing what God called his people to do thousands of years ago. Luke 
is telling us by quoting from Deuteronomy 15.4 in Acts 4 that the attitude God tells the people of God in the Old Testament to have towards the oppressed is the same attitude that you and I are called to as New Testament Christians. This isn't a political thing. This is a people of God thing. Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century Puritan pastor, who if he were here today, um, he'd be shocked by our music. And, uh, uh, and, and he would be definitely the most socially, politically, theologically conservative in this room, by far. But this is what he said. He said, there is no command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms than the command of giving to the poor and the oppressed. There is no command in all of God's word that is laid down in stronger terms than the command of giving to the poor and the oppressed. This is not a political thing. This is a people of God thing. So it's what we are called to. So how do we do it? I quoted Hebrews 13:9 when we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan a few weeks ago, which says, our hearts must be established by grace. A heart established by grace is the only thing that will lead us to true justice. Verse 10 of Deuteronomy 15 says, give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. How? How in the world are we even capable of that? Especially if we give knowing we're not gonna get back. The, nev- the Bible never calls us to do something without giving us the resources to do it. And he actually, he lays it out pretty clearly if you look for it in Deuteronomy 15. In verse four, he says, there should be no poor among you in the land your Lord is giving you. Do you hear it? God says, I gave you everything you have. This promised land, you didn't earn it. I brought you up out of Egypt because I was generous to you and I gave you what you have. So when you see someone who's in poor and who's in need and who, who's under the threat of becoming an oppressed person, give to them. And in case they missed it, he got very explicit in verses 14 and 15. After he tells them about setting the slaves free and, and giving them whatever they need, giving them liberally everything they need to succeed in life. He then goes on to say, give to him or or them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. He says, remember you were slaves. Remember that you were poor and I redeemed you. I set you free. You didn't figure it out on your own. You didn't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Therefore, because my grace to you is free, whenever you meet someone who is poor or oppressed, you should treat them the same way I treated you. And God isn't saying, all right, because you're doing justice for the poor, I'll save you. No, he says, because I saved you, because I saved you by grace, because you did nothing to earn this salvation, you should give to the poor. You should be doing justice for the poor. See, a heart established by grace leads to doing justice. Grace leads you and I to being just people. Now, some may say, all right, well, the the Old Testament talks a lot about poor people and orphans and justice. Uh, And in fact, you heard lots of those verses quoted today. But the Old Testament doesn't talk about it as much, and it, it doesn't. It doesn't. The, the, the New Testament talks a whole lot more about personal salvation and what Jesus did through his death and resurrection uh, as far as our sin condition. 
But I would say the New Testament actually goes beyond anything the Old Testament does. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says to the Corinthians, you must give to the poor. And then he gives them the reason why. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. In the Old Testament, God says, because my grace is free, you should give to the poor. But in the New Testament, God says, because my grace was costly, because my son gave his life, you should give sacrificially to the poor. See, in the Old Testament, they knew they got out of Egypt uh, and that was kind of like a get out of jail free card. But they had no idea what it would cost God to save sinful people. We do. We know what it cost Jesus to go to the cross to save us. We were spiritually poor and Jesus saved us by losing his spiritual riches and becoming spiritually poor so that through his poverty, you and I might become rich. The New Testament gives us a motivation that any person of the Old Testament would have had no clue about. So when you and I, when we get to a text like Deuteronomy 15, a text that says, if you're my people, you're gonna be radically generous. You're gonna be a part of of empowering people to self-sufficiency and you're gonna have a remarkable but realistic hope. Our response shouldn't be, oh, that's the Old Testament. Our response should be, but of course. All right, put me in, coach. What what do I need to learn? What do I need to study? Where do I need to go? What do I need to to hear about and learn about? What do I need to do? I grew up in a a church where every year um, we sent a mission team to Mexico City to one of the to the poorest of the poor in Mexico City. And it was, a, it was a long-time partnership with my church. And so every year, I remember um, the man who was over that ministry, Saul Cruz, uh, which is an incredible man who died a few years ago. Um, he would come and he would preach a sermon at church and it was always way longer than our sermon. And, uh, uh, and they would show slides. And, and I, just rem- I, I have the images still in my mind of this devastating poverty. Uh, but this happened every year growing up. And when I was in my mid-20s, I got invited to a dinner with him. And... Um, and it was because we had had a partnership with them for about 30 years now. And all the people who were first excited about it were now in their 60s. And, and it was a lot of manual labor on this trip. And so they were hoping they'd get some like 20-somethings to be excited about it so they could go and do the manual labor. And so I was in that group of people. And, um, and let me just say first, if you ever get an opportunity to go have a meal with someone who has given their whole life to being with the poor, Go. I don't care what you have to cancel. I don't care what else is on your schedule, go. You will encounter a kind of wisdom and godliness that you won't see anywhere else. I haven't seen it in my seminary professors. I haven't seen it in fellow pastors. It is a kind of wisdom and godliness that I've only seen with someone who has given their entire life to being with the poor. So I'm at this, at this dinner with, uh, with Saul Cruz. And, and I remember on my drive to the dinner, um, I kind of had a bad attitude. I had, I had just come to the point in my story where I was beginning to see that this really was all about grace, that all of Christianity, it's not about doing, it's about grace. It's about what Jesus has done for you. And I remember going to this dinner thinking, man, we're not gonna hear a lot about grace tonight. I'm just gonna feel guilty. I'm just gonna be told that I'm not doing enough for the poor. Uh, but I was so surprised Because the very first thing Saul said to us at dinner was this. He said, one of the greatest resources for the healing of the brokenness of the people I work with every day is the doctrine that we're justified by grace alone. 
And I remember thinking, that's crazy. What are you, what are you, ta- you just showed us a slideshow of people in horrific conditions. You mean to tell me it's practical to go into those people and, and spout off some kind of old abstract doctrine about that we're saved by faith alone? And he went on to explain this way. He said, imagine that you have no job. You have no money. You live cut off from the rest of society in a world ruled by poverty and violence. And, 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 and your skin's the wrong color. And you have no hope that anything in your circumstances will ever change. And around you is a society governed by the iron law of achievement. Every day on TV and in the community around you, you see things flash before your eyes that show you that you're nothing because you have no achievement because you can't afford this or that. You are a failure. And you know that you will continue to be a failure because there's no way you will achieve tomorrow what you couldn't achieve today. And so you're on this endless cycle of hopelessness. Your dignity is shattered and your soul is enveloped in the darkness of despair. Now, imagine someone tells you the gospel that you are not defined by your outside forces, by your circumstances, or even by your bad choices. It tells you that you count, that you matter, that even more than that, that you are loved unconditionally, irrespective of anything you have achieved or failed to achieve. Justification by grace, a useless doctrine to the oppressed, rubbish. It is the very thing which sets the oppressed free. Have you been set free? Who needs to know that freedom? When you look around at your community, as you look around your neighborhood, as you look around our city and our world, who needs to be set free? Do you need to go somewhere in order to share that freedom? I want to end um, by reading you just the last line of... uh, of the introduction to this book by Brian Stevenson, Just Mercy. Um, He ends the introduction saying this, the closer we get to mass incarceration and extreme levels of punishment, um, and I would say we could expand this to the closer we get to the oppressed, the more I believe it's necessary to recognize that we all need mercy, we all need justice, and perhaps we all need some measure of unmerited grace. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you uh, that uh, we actually got unmerited grace. That in Jesus, we have been truly set free. And Father, I thank you as free people that you have invited us to be your true people, to live out everything uh, uh, that proclaims freedom to those who are broken and oppressed and in, in desperate need. Father, help us as a, as a community, as a family, and us individually to wrestle with what it means for us to be generous, what it means for us to be a part of empowering those who have less, and what it means to have hope. Father, we thank you, as we sang earlier, that our hope is built on the fact that Jesus Christ came and did everything that we needed to do, that we couldn't do on our own, so that we could be seen as righteous. Now, by your spirit, empower our righteous acts. We pray this for our city and our world. In Jesus' name, amen.